we were getting, you know, hundreds of millions of views on these videos, which was absurd. And it was such a, uh, yeah, an eye-opening experience uh, to learn about, you know, viral content and food content and, and get that experience of what people found satisfying on the internet. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Pierce Abernethy is a really interesting and multi-talented dude, and I was really happy that he stopped by the show. Pierce is a trained cook, big-time TikTok and Instagram creator, and he's been known to model and work with fashion brands in the past. I love the way Pierce thinks and talks about food, and we tap into his background living in Kentucky, cooking in New York City, and walking the runway in Italy. Pierce is a rising star in food for all the right reasons, and I hope you enjoy getting to know him a bit better. Pierce Abernathy, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's, it's a- cool to meet you in person. I've 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 checked out your your TikTok, your Instagram, some of your 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 website content, and I just love your shit. It's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I feel like this has been a long time coming. We've been I feel like chatting on email for yeah. a few months now, and it finally finally happened. Well, you're a busy guy because I, from the jump, I want to just talk to you and acknowledge. You know, you're a you're a chef, uh, a tastemaker. You're definitely an editorial dude. You worked at BuzzFeed. Yeah. Um, you're also a model and an influencer. So I want to. We don't have too many. We've had Chrissy Teigen in the pages of Taste, but we don't have too many yeah. models <laughs> on the Taste podcast. So I just want to know, like, what's it like balancing? This really, like, passionate, hardcore interest in food and cooking with, you know, fashion. Yeah. I mean, well, first, it, it, that feels weird to say outside model. I still don't feel like that title relates to me completely, but I, I, you know, I guess it's true. And it's something that has kind of happened through the growth of my platform on social media. Um so, yeah, I was basically kind of scouted online uh, from Instagram by basically a mother agent who has been phenomenal to work with and has just been throwing different things my way that he thought would be a good fit. Um, usually, you know, I didn't think much of it. And then something happened with Gucci, and last year I ended up walking that show. Mm-hmm. And we kind of both sat down and were like, okay, maybe there could be something here. This could be you know, an opportunity. Uh, and I enjoy it. I interest, you know, it interests me. I like to like to dress well. I like clothes. Um, so yeah, have been exploring it in a lot of different ways and have been able to work with fashion brands, not just as a model as, but almost as a, as food talent. So, uh, that's been really exciting and kind of hoping to explore that world a bit more. Well, there's clearly benefits because you get to go to Italy a lot and it's a pretty <laughs> great place to, to, to go for food. But yeah, to be clear too, you're a, you're a, you walk, you're, you're a runway, you work on runways. You don't necessarily always work in like the, the catalog or the print, um, ad- advertising editorial world. Um, so you just were in the spring 23 fashion shows. Where were you at? You were all over, right? Yeah. So uh, to be clear, I didn't walk any shows. Okay. Um, I, you know, was kind of piggybacking off of a trip. I was in Ireland, actually, with Kerrygold Car- Butter reached out, and I was fortunate to go on a media trip with them. Oh, sweet. N- not SponCon, love Kerrygold. Yeah, not SponCon, but truly— uh, 
what an amazing trip. Mm -hmm. We had perfect weather. We It was like a group of six or seven of us, and we went all over Ireland, and we saw a bunch of different dairy farms, stayed at some beautiful places, went to Ballymaloo uh, Cooking School, mm -hmm. if, if you're familiar. Famous, yeah, absolutely. What a great school. Yeah, and was able to meet the team there, have a meal, tour the grounds, and it was truly eye-opening. But um, decided to just piggyback off that trip, and knowing that Milan and Paris Fashion Weeks were, were right there, I was like, okay, it could be a— Good opportunity to maybe do some networking. I had a few kind of invitations to shows and some mm -hmm. parties. Um, so, yeah, just explored that. I did do, like, two castings. Nothing kind of came about, but um, it's always good to kind of get your face in front of as many people as possible. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's an excuse to go to Italy and Paris. Yeah, what's that casting situation? Like, I, I know there's clearly many more women walking uh, than guys, and, and it seems like uh, it's challenging to break in. But what's that? what's that vibe like? It's it's weird. Like I'm 28, so I'm yeah. like ancient compared to most <laughs> of these models. So for me, it, it's definitely a bit weird. Um, and you're you're you know you're kind of treated like cattle. It's just yeah. you know in and out. But I've also had great you know great opportunities too, and, and good experiences. Um, but during the fashion week, it's you know you're a number basically. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it feels weird. It's not something I love, but. I think outside of the fashion week, you're, you know, you're sometimes able to meet one-on-one -on -one with people and, you know, develop a relationship or rapport. And if it doesn't work out that time, maybe they'll remember you for something other. You Absolutely. Know, well, they're going to remember you because of your TikTok and, and you know, some <laughs> of this, these knife skills that you got, which are dope. I mean, you're really good knife skills, I oh. have to say. Like, <laughs> Thank you. A lot of folks on TikTok do not have that. Um, I certainly don't. Let's talk about going traveling for your job. Um, have you found any, or even for pleasure and for tourism, have you yeah. found any cities that had like an unexpectedly cool food scene? I mean, uh, unexpected. I don't know. I mean, I feel like people in food will probably be like, "These aren't unexpected." Nah, man. But uh, let's just I, go there. I love Philadelphia. Okay, I think it's one of the sure. one of the best food cities in in the U.S. Um, like all of Mike Salmanov's spots. Um, yeah, there's there's so much great food there from like, you know, the barbacoa spots to Pizzeria Bianco. Um oh god, I, yeah, just, there's there's a ton Yeah, of like all the Salamanov places. Yeah, I love I love Philly. Got to got to oh. shout it out. Um I have been traveling a lot to Copenhagen and, you know, I think that's obviously lauded as, you know, some of the best restaurants in the world mm -hmm. there. Um but I, you know, I think more so the casual food scene there is is so great. The cafe scene, the bread scene, um, you know, they have pretty much at every coffee shop is just bread, butter, and cheese. Mm -hmm. So it's these like, you know, sourdough buns with beautiful, like tangy, acidic uh, Danish butter and comte cheese. And it's so addicting. I had one every day I was there. It's, yeah. it's phenomenal. Um, let's see another Berlin. Berlin has a lot of, you know, great food going on. That's cool. We don't talk about Berlin as a food city. We really don't. Yeah. Ever. I, I mean, I'm Armenian and, you know, maybe a little tricky territory to say, but there's incredible Turkish food there. Um, and Turkish and Armenian food are very, very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, it's one of the biggest diasporas, I believe of Turkish, uh, Turkish community outside of Turkey. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, the food there is, so great, and then a lot of great wine bars. Um, yeah, a lot of cool chefs uh, doing doing great things there. Yeah, too. you get to travel uh, for your job and just in general a lot. It's yeah, cool. yeah, it's it's been a dream. I think this year I've traveled more 
than, I don't know, the past five years of my life. Yeah. It's, it's been pretty wild. You, let's step back and, and talk about growing up. Uh, I know you, you were born in Virginia, but you, you were raised in Kentucky, in Louisville. I'd love to hear about that and what was like food like in your life growing up. Yeah, absolutely. So I moved to Louisville when I was five. Proper pronunciation, pronunciation, proper yeah. pronunciation there. I mean, obviously you're from there, but just say it one more time. Yeah, Louisville. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as one of my friends, uh, one of my dearest friends puts it, it's like kind of spaghetti is falling out of your mouth. Louisville. <laughs> That's a general note on the Midwestern accent that I have kind of broken over the past 20 years. But yeah, the great call. Spaghetti O's flowing from your mouth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, my mom is from Pennsylvania. Dad is from Virginia. Uh, I was fortunate to grow up where my mom would cook for me and my brother fairly consistently and was, you know, very much adamant on having fairly healthy meals. Um, so I was really accustomed to trying new things Um quite a lot. Uh, there was a point in my life where I got quite picky and I didn't mm. enjoy food. And I feel like, I don't know, most people, some people, at least, I don't know, myself go through kind of that uh, experience. But um, yeah, my dad's side of the family is Armenian. And so my dad's mom, my grandma didn't cook a ton of Armenian food, but the things that she did, she passed down to my mother and mm -hmm. my mother would make it. So things like pilaf, things like dolma, um, I was, you know, always, we always had that. So, uh, yeah, it was, you know, I was always experienced and always, sh food was always a part of my life. Um, but, you know, up until I guess college really is when it started becoming, uh, more and more serious. More part of serious. My life. Are there any Louisville, uh, local spots? I mean, Ed Lee been on the po taste podcast, friend of mine, great chef in Louisville, there's a lot more going on than Ed Lee. Ed Lee is, is, is often cited as like the Louisville chef, but what's going on in Louisville? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. The pop-up scene there is, mm -hmm. is really big. Uh, one of my favorite spots is uh, Pizzeria Lupo, Pizza Lupo. Uh, shout out to them. Uh, they're doing some of the, the coolest food in Louisville, I think. It's all sourdough pies and a lot of great uh, sides and seasonal dishes. Um, yeah, that spot is, is probably one of my favorite um, I don't know. There's an incredible Vietnamese population mm -hmm. there, an incredible Vietnamese food, like Vietnam Kitchen. Let's see. Uh, Putting you on the spot, telling you, like, you know, yeah, I know it's political. No, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think, too. I'm, I don't know why. Have I'm, you been to Shirley Mays at all? Yes. In Smoketown? Yeah. I, I've been there a couple times. I've been to I Love Louisville. That place rules. And that place the is— The hot water cornbread there oh, is yeah. phenomenal. So, yeah, that spot really— really blew my mind and I actually lived I don't know probably a five minute walk maybe mm -hmm. no maybe like a 10-15 minute walk mm -hmm. from there but yeah I would go there I've been there I think twice and I love how the menu kind of changes every day yeah they have different specials but yeah that hot water cornbread is is something like I've never had it's you know rich and decadent and, yeah. and fried and and phenomenal. And I thought the port, like the ribs there I had were, were outstanding. They, yeah. I know they're smoking in the back, I think, but it's, it's an amazing place. And, yeah. And Ham Hock too. Yeah. It's wild too. Cause that, that building has like a history in itself where, yeah. you know, I think Smokedown was one of the first areas in Louisville or in Kentucky after the civil war that was like, uh, I guess welcomed to the, the black community mm -hmm. or, or free and open. Um, and yeah, there was like a famous jazz bar there before and then a grocery store uh, and then Shirley Mays. And it's still like a family affair there, That's which cool. is so cool. Got to head to Louisville again. I haven't been in a minute. You moved to New York and you worked at BuzzFeed and I'm maybe getting the timeline 
out of order, but you also worked at Huertas uh, in the East Village. Yeah. So Huertas came about from BuzzFeed. So BuzzFeed was one of my (laughs) (laughs) funny funny enough. uh, Yeah. So I moved here in 2016 after school, um, got an internship at a a vice media agency called Care Creative, which is now Mm. now defunct, but uh, interned there for a bit. Uh, ended up not getting hired. They closed down their production. I studied film, uh, was kind of focused in the digital film, digital media world, um, and then got a job at BuzzFeed. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was right around the time they launched their Tasty Vertical. Heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back then it was it was absolutely insane. Um, so I was fortunate to work on that vertical and started cooking a lot. So as a producer there, you're not only filming and editing the videos, you're ideating the recipes, you're actually cooking them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's multifaceted, and I loved that about the job. I loved that I was doing all these different things. But I didn't necessarily love the food that we made. Mm-hmm. Like, as many people may know, Tasty is, like, pretty much uh, over-the-top, very trendy, viral food, uh, food that I, to be honest, probably wouldn't share. I mean, Tasty invented pans and hands, basically. Yeah. Viral video. I mean, the recipe video, which is now part of all food media. It's crazy that you worked there so young. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it was eye opening, and you know, we were getting, you know, hundreds of millions of views yeah. on these videos, which was absurd, and it was such a uh, yeah an eye opening experience uh, to learn about, you know, viral content and food content and and get that experience of what people found satisfying yeah. on the internet. So let's uh, talk about Huertas then. You you end up at Huertas working the line, a great restaurant in East Village, Spanish um, tapas and, and Spanish regional cuisine. So you're thrown into the line situation. You did not go to culinary school. What's that like? Yeah, so uh, at BuzzFeed, I was really interested, got very interested in cooking and kind of surpassed my passion for film. And I wanted to potentially reach out to a chef owner to cook with. Um, and Jonah Miller, the chef owner at Huertas, was read an email of mine, was nice enough to let me come in and basically intern. So I'd go in after work at BuzzFeed um, and just, you know, do some prep work. And on the weekends, maybe I'd be able to work on Monday. And I did that for about six months until I was, you know, they had an open position in the kitchen and I wasn't really happy and didn't see a lot of growth at BuzzFeed. So decided to quit BuzzFeed and, and end up working at Huertas for about six months. My goodness. So like, you're, you're leaving a platform that's giving you a lot of visibility to like become anonymous in the back of a house. Yeah. Were you thinking at that time that you were going to continue doing food media as you have with TikTok or were you just like, I want to cook? Yeah, I really wanted to cook. I wanted to throw myself, you know, I had no professional experience. Um, At the time, I was thinking about potentially trying to open up a cafe or a spot at some point in my life, which is why I was really adamant about finding a chef owner. Um, But yeah, I had just had such a great time learning, you know, learning and cooking at Huertas and the team was... uh, you know, we were we were such a you know it was very much camaraderie. Uh, it was it was a great experience, and um, yeah, just decided to to take it head on and mm-hmm. and and work the line. It What's a dish that you actually you all, when you walked in, you had no idea it was so complicated, but you but when you started making it, it became clear that this was a dish that took an incredible amount of technique incredible amount of like thought into the sourcing was there is there one dish that comes to mind 
just technique wise, there was one, it was just our, you know, a lot of the things that prepared there, we, I wouldn't say it was simple. It was very technique driven. Um, but I would say the setas with smoked garlic, uh, we like cold smoked this garlic and then pulsed it. And then that sauce itself was just, it had so much flavor and so much depth that I thought there was a million things in there. And it was really just smoked garlic with a little bit of sherry vinegar mm-hmm. and then just per- like seared mushrooms and a little thyme. And, and that dish was something I would always go back to and is, you know, would always kind of crave, mm-hmm. especially, you know, the raw egg yolk in the middle is just, just phenomenal. I love the use of raw egg yolk in, Sp- in Spanish cooking. Yeah. It's really, really, really special. Like this yeah. place, Barmut in Barcelona, used to do a raw egg carpaccio. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. It sounds so good. And Spanish food is like truly the best. Yeah. Yeah. The Basque region is one of my favorite places to travel, hands down. And so let's go uh, f- move forward. Uh Huertas, you're, you're you're humming along, but then you know TikTok enters the picture. Like you're you're thinking because like your videos are great. Like you clearly have a film background. They're not like kind of they're not janky. You know they're not like rough. They're actually really well edited. I don't mean it actually. You know, I hope you mean that. That's like a positive thing. Like they're actually they are good videos. And uh, I feel like you clearly knew what you were doing when you were launching TikTok. You wanted it to be really special. Yeah, so that all kind of happened during the pandemic. Okay. Um, I had moved back to Kentucky and was staying with my parents. Uh, they were gracious enough to, to let me stay there. Um, so I was cooking for dinner for them pretty much every night. Uh, a lot of free time on my hands and was just using that, just cooking. Mm. Um, and this was right when the time Reels had launched yeah. uh, on Instagram. And basically a friend of mine, uh, we challenged each other to, to make a Reel. And I made a baba ganoush. And I thought it was, you know, it was just such a fun, creative outlet. It, you know, didn't take me a lot of time. Um, I didn't have to be too sacred about it. It could be a little messy. And, and yeah, it was fun. Uh, and it got more attention than a lot of my other posts. At that time, uh, during the pandemic, I was thinking about potentially making YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. As a film as a film major uh, and having that film background, I was never satisfied with anything that I shot. I would just like be editing for like hours constantly and just like, this is just not good enough. Um, so when Reels came about in TikTok, I was like, this is great. It feels kind of like a journal entry. Yeah. I can be a little sloppy. This is, you know, very fun creative outlet for me. And um, yeah, I'm able to just experiment. So it kind of all started with these dips after Baba Ganoush I did. I don't know, I think like a feta dip with yogurt um, Mm -hmm. and then just kept going from there. And yeah, I I think once or twice a week I would just make these and uh, slowly but surely I started growing more and more and then branching outside of dips. That's cool. Yeah, with your hashtag dip content, like what are you thinking about? What is your goal with these these dips? Because they are – they're rad. I love your dips. Yeah, I mean for me, I like – I. Initially chose dips because I felt like it was one area in cooking that didn't have a lot of rules. Like as cool. long as the outcome was like the texture is good and the taste is good, yeah, it doesn't really matter how you get there. Yeah, and I guess it's like fat and salt. Yeah, and then you got a vessel that you got to think about. But yeah, that that's about matter. it. So I would just go to the grocery store and try to find that one star ingredient and be like, okay, sweet potato. You know, how do I want to build around here? Mm. You know, what's do I want heat? because there's some sweetness, okay, maybe some peppers, okay, maybe need a little bit of acid, um, okay, fat, do I want it to have, you know, a, an olive oil, or do I want, like, uh, nuts in there, or something like that, so just kind of building it that way. So when you uh, took that job at Huertas, you didn't really have a an actual, like, 
culinary school background, how did you learn to cook? Because clearly there is a bridge between being a college grad and working in agencies in film to like being good at food. So like how did you learn to cook? By cooking a lot. Yeah, man. Right <laughs> on. Just cooking a lot at home. Um, yeah, the bug really bit me at BuzzFeed. And, you know, I was cooking almost every day there, uh, trying to experiment with content and food that I, mm-hmm. you know, really associated with. But also at home, I was doing dinner parties for friends. Uh, friends had little pop-ups or, or you know, uh, businesses that wanted to do a party, and I would kind of cater the food. Um so always, always practicing that way where I felt like I was becoming a confident home cook, but by no means would, you know, was I ready to cook at a restaurant. And that's, you know, what I learned at Huertas was, you know, how to work efficiently, how to, you know, cook eight chickens, <laughs> eight chicken breasts at once, how to, yeah. you know, cook for a party of a hundred. Air and, traffic control. Yeah. And it was, it was a completely different set of skills that I learned there. You bring up dinner parties, which yeah. I think is a theme. Uh, on your bio, quote, you are researching dinner parties, which is cool. L- let me ask you, okay, there was an article in New York Times that like implied that dinner parties are over some something, something, something. Yes. I don't know. Um, but Pierce, like straight up, what is the status of the dinner party in late 2020? Yeah. So funny, my my friend Emily wrote that article, and she reached out to me, and she was like, "Yeah, the dinner party is over." Sorry, Emily, and and she <laughs> disagree was, hard on that. Yeah, one. and and that's kind of what I said. I made that statement um, where I, I disagree, and her point was that you know during the pandemic there was you know I guess not a lot of uh, restaurants open, people had a lot of free time on my hands, free time on their hands, and they had their, you know, a lot of time to make their spaces feel really welcome. And they wanted to, you know, have people over and, and, and share that hospitality. And now that things are getting kind of more back into the swing of things, people mm-hmm. want their space separate. They want to be able to go out and do things. But I think the dinner party is so special. I think conversations happen, you know, at a dinner party that wouldn't happen at a restaurant table. Um, I think there's a... Thank you. Yeah. Yes, agree. And, you know, I, I think for me, it's like one of the reasons why I love cooking so much is, you know, I want to share my my take on hospitality. And, you know, I can't really do that with these cooking videos. I can't do that cooking for, you know, just my girlfriend or, you know, whatever. I, I want to host people. I like, I love the idea of being a host. And it's it's just comforting going to someone's house and, and feeling that love. Uh, and, you know, a re- restaurants can do a really good job at that, uh, that yeah. great hospitality and great service, but it's just not the same. Yeah, and you know, let's back up to Emily's article, and I'll link to them in the show notes. I mean, clearly we were exhausted with home cooking, and I think for a certain age group and a certain you know tax bracket, um, when dining out is is feasible, it's a great thing to do. Like mm-hmm. I'm not, I love going to restaurants. I just I think like this like blatant statement that like the dinner party is dead is uh, frustrating because to your point, you don't act the same way when you're invited to someone's home. And then it allows the home cook to actually show some of their skills that they've acquired by reading taste or reading cookbooks. And and there's a real pride in making a meal for somebody. I feel like that's really lost um, when you go to a restaurant. You know, there's not that level of pride in hospitality. And I clearly you're a hospitality guy. You wanted to do a cafe maybe or a restaurant. It seems like that. So my question um, after that statement, and I'm sorry again, Emily, I disagree. Um, I want to I want to know what do you have to say about the dinner party because you're researching them, like you're you're getting all this information. What is there to say? 
Yeah, I mean, p- people have been having dinner parties, you know, since I don't know the medieval ages, probably before that. Yeah, um, and the, they're they're not going anywhere. They may go in and out of of fad, but again, there's there's a special there's something special about dinner parties. There's an atmosphere that is just not similar anywhere else. Um, there's there's opportunities for friendships and relationships and connections that that wouldn't happen anywhere else. There's, uh, you know, points of view and there's discussions and debates that can be had that I feel like are just very conducive to what the environment of a dinner party is. Great point. Um, I want to know about some of your go-to recipes when you're hosting in New York or if you're back in Louisville hosting there. Different spaces obviously dictate the menu. Yeah. Maybe a couple dishes that you love to bring out for a dinner party. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always love to start with, you know, kind of some anti-pasta and cheese. That's, you know, I want people to have food accessible as soon as they walk in the door in a, in a glass of wine ready if they want it to. So uh, always Castle Vetrano olives. Uh, I love Basque cheeses, so Manchego, Idiazabel, mm-hmm. um, definitely some fresh anchovies, some bocarones, uh, like tinned fish for sure. Yeah. Um, so there, and then I'm a person who kind of always goes a little crazy with dinner parties. I want to have as many dishes on the table as yeah. possible. And a lot of that is based around seasonality. Um, so especially when I'm going, you know, cooking for a dinner party, I'll go to the farmer's market and build something around there. So I'll have, you know, two to three different salads, definitely a dip or two. Um, and then, yeah, I think for me, I love a presentation piece. So like a whole fish, yeah, a exactly. stuffed whole fish. Big whole fish fan here. Yeah. I've written about it a lot. I love that. Yeah, so simple. And then, you know, either a grain salad or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Um, one of my favorite dips to do, which is so simple and, and do it anywhere, is just labna, fresh turmeric, and black pepper mm-hmm. uh, with just a little bit of salt. It's like... It's been a showstopper for me, and it's so simple, and I can whip it up in you know five minutes, and and it's just on the table. Yeah, I mean, do you do you buy labna like just as is in the grocery store, or do you just double strain Greek, or what are you thinking? I've yeah, I've double strained it, but for me, it's not it's not worth it. It's yeah. like you know, especially in a New York apartment. Real talk, absolutely agree. <laughs> you know, you have this you know huge like cheesecloth hanging from Your you know some cabinet or yeah. something, and. It's 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 fun to do every once in a yeah. while, but it's it's just not worth it. Yeah, you know? and putting so turmeric and black pepper. That's it. I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so a beautiful simple. spread. And that fresh turmeric is just has that sweet flavor that you know dried turmeric doesn't have. Do you think about like healthy food? Like when that word comes up, I mean, your uh, your profession when you're when you are working in fashion, you know, you may require you to be extremely fit and maybe you have to eat in a way that some would call healthy. I hate to use that word because healthy means many different things. But I guess my question is, do you have like a way of eating? Um, I mean, you're like an athlete. So are you like cutting weight before photo shoots and stuff like that? Or No. I mean, I, I would say in general, I like everything I eat for the most part is healthy. Like, yeah. I, and, and that is my own sense of the word. Like, I also love French fries. I eat French fries once a week. I love ice cream. I eat ice cream. I think it's all about, um, you know, the parameters that you set for yourself, how often you're eating these things and, and ensuring that, you know, there's a diversity in, in what you're, what you're eating and you're not overeating things that, you know, make you feel bad. Um, but yeah, I think it's all a mix. I, I exercise, I, 
love to cook with a ton of olive oil. Mm-hmm. Some people may say that's not healthy. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I would say more so the terms around my food would be like seasonal and fresh and like local than the yeah. idea of healthy. Yeah. You know? Well said. I like that. Um, are there any cookbooks that you're really vibing with right now? Do you feel, um, are you like linked, synced up with the season with the new cookbooks or do you have like some go-to older cookbooks? Yeah, two two come to mind. Um, Jess Demuck, uh, Salad Freak. Yeah, guest um, of the Taste Podcast. Love Jess. Yeah, she yeah she's uh, great. We've we've chatted a bit online, but um, yeah, she has a very cool story too of working with Martha Stewart. But I mean, I'm obviously a huge salad fan, and I think mm-hmm. what she does in the book is great. Uh, and then uh, Andy Barragani's new book is also yeah. you know so fun. I think we have uh, a similar cooking style um, and definitely referenced a lot of his recipes in the past from Bon Appetit when I was, you know, really starting to cook, you know, early on for the first time. I, you know, he remembers specifically this one of like leeks with walnuts that it was just, I've made probably, I don't know how many times, like, and it's just so simple and so phenomenal. Yeah, Andy's a great, great, great home cook and and, and chef, and, and he's also been a guest on the Taste Podcast. I'll link to both Jess and Andy's episodes in the show notes. Uh, Pierce, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or budget, meaning you have unlimited funds, what would that cookbook be? Oh, man. I mean, if, if I could just write any cookbook, you know. that <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, that's a big task just to begin with. Yeah. Um, but for me, I'm I'm really interested in, in connecting flavors, I think, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how to pair different things. So if I could really hone in around, you know, a massive chart of produce and fruit and vegetables and grains and kind of connect the dots between uh, different tastes and, and figure out a way to form a cookbook around that. So where like the end of a recipe, there's different, uh, okay, if you're making this, you could have X, Y, and Z yeah. with it. Uh, and just kind of jumping all around a cookbook in that way. I think it'd be really fun. It'd be exciting to check out. Are, are you are you thinking about writing a cookbook? Do you, do you have interest? And this is a hypothetical question, but uh, yeah. the first one was, but are you actually going to do it? <laughs> I I definitely have interest. It's definitely on the table. Nice. Um, for me, it's like, you know, a lot of how I think about recipes now and how I cook now is very much like a diary entry. Um and a cookbook is the complete opposite of that. You know, you're going to take one to two years to write it and then maybe another year for it to go to publishing. So, you know, it needs to be something that I'm going to st- still think is my food philosophy and still be relevant two or three years from now. So it it's a bit overwhelming for me. But, yeah, I'm, I've been thinking about it a lot. And cool. it's something that I really want to, you know, uh, take on. Awesome. I look forward to that. Pierce Abernethy, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Yeah, Matt, it's such a pleasure. Ista Belfridge, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's really great to have you. And, and uh, you know, we've chatted before with the Yodam books. And in the past, I, I feel like Yodam has been part of your identity, but you've branched out and done your own book now. So we'll get into that. But first, I, I do have some Yodam questions. I'm just going to go there. Is that cool? Absolutely, <laughs> of course. You're not the first. <laughs> Full transparency. I, I just don't want to be the guy who's like, okay, I'm going to ask you all about the big why and then uh, not talk about your book. No, no, no. I completely understand. It, he's a great subject to talk about. <laughs> and he's a great guy and he's been on the podcast a couple of times and, and I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm also a fan of yours. But take me back to 
the Adelangi Test Kitchen. What was the interview process like? Um, yeah, I think people are always surprised to hear that um, Yotam didn't actually hire me himself. So I didn't actually know him when I was working at Noppy uh, as a commie chef in the kitchen there. Um, but they were looking to hire from within for the test kitchen. And I actually did my trial with uh, the other two recipe developers, one of which I was you know, trialing to replace because she was moving to Australia. Um, and he wasn't there. Um, so I actually, yeah, I kind of got the job without him having ever met me. So I think people often assume that I was sort of like singled out for my talent in the kitchen, uh, which is just not true at all because I was actually doing a really bad job uh, as a chef, <laughs> in, as a commie chef. It was, you know, working as a line cook is completely different to developing recipes. It's a completely different skill set and I wasn't good at that. Um, so I wasn't like singled out for my talent there and I wasn't interviewed by Yotam. Um, so it was actually kind of a case of luck and a, ca- a case of being in the right place at the right time. But um, I like to think I sort of proved myself in the five yeah. years that I worked there, for sure. Um, but but no, th- there was no interview with Yotan to get the job. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that clearly you had some bit of a tryout phase, but I just have to overstate that the OTK is such a special place in terms of the scrutiny you give towards recipes and how your recipes work and your recipes are extremely creative. You know it's an ODK recipe. Did you feel like you were creating something really special in terms of cookbook history and recipe history? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it always felt very kind of very seminal to be working there. I mean, I was always pinching myself thinking like, how the, how the hell did I get here? Um, and it, you know, seeing Yotam every day kind of became so normal, but I you know, did have to sort of check myself every now and then and be like, you know, people would sometimes like lose their mind over seeing him. Um, so yeah, I felt very, very lucky. And he's, he's an incredible man. Like you, you know, you know, this, you've interviewed him. He's just, he's extremely kind, extremely wise, um, really sort of generous with his knowledge and in bringing bringing people up around him. You know, there's not many chefs who have test kitchens who are very open about the fact that they have recipe developers and sort of, you know, celebrate them as well. So I was very lucky to work there and it definitely felt like a really special place to be. And I certainly wouldn't have been able to write this book without that experience. Um, is Big Y on, a, you know, you guys are on a tight deadline. You've got your, you know, Guardian column or your newspaper column. You've got a book deadline. What's Big Y like on a deadline? He's super, he's super chilled. He's super relaxed. And we were never really up against a deadline because we had the Guardian, we had three Guardian recipes every week and a couple of New York Times recipes every month and, you know, always a book. But we were just like, we were always very working, you know, far ahead of ourselves so every week we were doing recipes but it wasn't like for that for next Saturday it was like for four months time or for three months time we were always working three or four months ahead so it's not we yeah it was a pretty chilled place to work it I mean when I was working on flavor there were certainly deadlines like when we had to have the manuscript done when we had to have all the recipes tested by but day to day when we were doing you know uh, Guardian and New York Times recipes it was just you know it was just what we did every week. So it was not like an unexpected deadline coming out of nowhere. We just always kept ahead. When you're working ahead in the OTK, are you thinking about seasons? Are you thinking about concepts? How do you mood board a recipe and how do you organize your thoughts into an actual recipe? 
Yeah, I think that was one of the funnest parts of working in the test kitchen is that every, every I guess maybe once every few weeks, we would all sit down together and just come up with ideas that we, you know, we were very, Yotam really gave us the freedom to kind of do whatever we wanted. So often a column would be about, you know, a seasonal vegetable and we'd be like, oh, let's do a, let's do three recipes on asparagus or let's do three recipes on spring greens or whatever. But sometimes we were just like, hey, I really like this recipe that's a rolled thing. Let's do like three rolled recipes or, you know, or I had this amazing dish at a Filipino restaurant yesterday. Let's do like three Filipino inspired recipes. There was no, there's no like formula for the way we did it. And, you know, inspiration came from many, many forms and many directions. So yeah, definitely sometimes it was seasonal, but not, not always. It could have, it could just be, yeah, it can come from any direction. Did you find the OTK um, lightly online, moderately online, extremely online, meaning are you uh, finding these recipe inspiration in places like TikTok, Twitter, message boards, or are you more in the world? I am definitely more in the world. I've actually never been on TikTok before, so... <laughs> Mazel, I, bless you. Great. <laughs> I'm doing my very best to uh, avoid that. Um, I know I'm, my, my publishers and my manager are always trying to get me on, but I'm, I'm resisting at all costs. I've still never been on TikTok. I've seen, like, you know, videos that are from TikTok on Instagram, you know, that kind of thing. But I've never actually, actually. opened... I've never opened the app myself. Um, but yeah, I certainly get, we all did, we all got a lot of inspiration from, from Instagram. Um, but I think in the test kitchen, we definitely more, you know, we relied, we have a, we had a huge library of books. Um, we were very lucky that, you know, everyone under the sun wanted to send Yotam their books. So we had sort of like every book, um, we had cookbooks coming in, you know, two, three times a week. Uh, so that was, and, and also just each other, we, uh, we were very lucky to, I was, I was very lucky to work with people from all over the world. Like my colleague Noor is from Bahrain. My other colleague yeah. Chaya is from Mauritius. Uh, Gitai Yotam's PA was from, was from Israel. Uh, and, uh, Calvin who used to run the restaurants, he was from South Africa, but spent a lot of time in Thailand. So we, we got a lot of inspiration from each other. It sounds like a slice of New York or London or any cosmopolitan international city, the makeup of your test kitchen. Sounds really, really, really fun. Um, I'd like to get to your book because I love it. I got a copy about a month ago and I, it's been on my desk and I just, I pick it up every couple of days. I'm landing on a recipe or I'm just looking at the photography in the art direction. I love it. It's really, really smart. I want to jump and just start the title of Mezcla. How do you define this term? So uh, Mezcla means yeah, sort of mix or blend or fusion in Spanish. And that's what the book is about. It's about uh, mixing inspiration from around the world. It's about fusion cooking. Um, and it's also about my mixed upbringing um, and kind of how that's shaped me as a cook. So yeah, so the introduction is kind of more specifically about three countries that I, I really love and that have played a big part in my cooking journey. So my mum is Brazilian. So um, I grew up eating Brazilian food, traveling to Brazil. My dad's family lived in Mexico so and my parents met in Mexico. My name is Mexican, so I have like a quite a deep affinity for Mexico, despite the fact that I am not Mexican and I've never lived there. People, I think, often assume that I am, but I'm not. I just I'm just obsessed. Um, and we, you know, I went there as a kid and I became obsessed with the food from a young age. And I think, yeah, just the fact that I have a Mexican name made me feel quite connected to the country, even though, um, even though I'm not Mexican. Um, and then Italy, uh, is where we lived when I was growing up because my dad worked with Italian wine. So 
Mezcla basically means a mix of those countries, a mix, you know, fusion of inspiration. And the reason that it's called Mezcla uh, in Spanish as opposed to like mix in English or mistura in Portuguese or mescolare in Italian is just simply because I think mezcla is a really beautiful word. And, it, you know, it looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. Um, it has meaning in like in in art and, and music as well as it does in food. It's It's just quite a beautiful word. And I, think, I mean, z- aesthetically, yeah. the ZC yeah. just looks nice. Those yeah, two yeah. letters yeah. next to each other. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, the amount of times that people call it mezcal, but uh, that's fine with me because I love mezcal. So. <laughs> yeah, right on. I mean, it's it's it, it poses a question and I think a title that poses a question is not a bad thing. I don't think you have to be overt and call it something maybe my, my, my colleagues in the book publishing world may disagree, but. Well, I mean, that's completely true. My, I actually had to fight quite hard to be able to call it Mezcloud. The publisher, my publishers, I, I love them, but they, you know, mm-hmm. they did, they did say, you know, they did, they weren't going to let me call it Mezcloud. They said, you know, no one's going to understand what it means. Uh, they're hmm. they're going to think it's Mezcal. So they're going to think it's a book about cocktails um, or they're just going to not understand. So they won't pick it up. And I was, and I sort of had to say, to stop and say like you know if they don't understand what it means all they need to do is pick up the book flick through it or literally just turn it around and they'll have a uh, they'll have a translation um i'd much rather catch the interest of people who are willing to you know open a book or turn it around than just like any old you know they were suggesting me calling it something like dinner or let's eat and i was like where well where's where's the fun in that where's the sort of originality in that well, point for you for winning that battle because it is a difficult battle and and uh, I'm sure you'll get into it in your memoir about that battle <laughs> when time comes. Um, I want to talk about fusion because I hit that right away when I started reading the the recipes and without even reading the intro, I'm like, okay, so Ista is, is really embracing fusion. And, you know, fusion is something I've talked about on the show a lot and Norman Van Naken, the great chef from Florida, and I were DMing a lot about fusion and he he was like a pioneer in American fusion. But then something happened and fusion food became extremely uncool. It almost became an F word. And I'm on this kind of path to like maybe reclaiming the word fusion. And you clearly have even done this. You've you've gone without you're not just reclaiming it, you've proven that fusion is actually a very exciting thing Mm. well I mean like I say in the introduction all food is is fusion really I mean even for example one of my favorite dishes in the world is moqueca it's a Brazilian seafood stew but it's a fusion of indigenous Brazilian cooking Portuguese cooking and West African cooking so like even a dish that people think this is a Brazilian dish it's a fusion dish so really and you know any any dish that you think of you can probably trace it back to multiple sources um, but yeah, I think you're totally right. Fusion that went through, it went through a period where it was super uncool, uh, super sort of like a taboo word where, you know, anyone who was doing fusion cooking just kind of like, it meant that the food was just all over the place and lacked focus. And, uh, and, and now I think most people I feel are doing fusion now. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's having its moment for sure. Um, and yeah, I'm just a big believer that, you know, if things taste good, then, then there's no, exactly. harm, there's no harm in it. If it tastes good. And, you know, I think the younger generation of chefs have certainly, um, they didn't live through the times of like, you know, bad versions of kimchi carbonara and like, just like the white, white chef coats and potentially even white chefs, like trying to maybe, um, 
force these two cultures together to be like creative and maybe to lesser results. So I feel like um, maybe the younger generation hasn't even seen this negativity and is almost like, this just tastes delicious. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think we, I mean, we also just live in a in an age where we have access to absolutely everything. Um, you know, yep. in, in every, you know, most shops will have ingredients from all over the world. Uh, and if not, you can get it next day delivery. Um, so we have, we have such incredible access to ingredients that, you know, people didn't, uh, even five, 10 years ago. So I think that's played, that plays a, a big part in it as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't think people should be flippant about fusion. I think it's, it's really important to, to do it considerately. Um, and also, you know, to make sure that you're, you're paying respect to that cuisine that you're taking inspiration from or being inspired by, but but it's, uh, I think it's the funnest place to be. So true. It's never a boring moment. And I want to get into some actual concepts from the book because I, 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 you know, reading the recipes and cooking through some of the recipes, I feel like you are having some takes. Like you're, you've got a little, you've got some takes, which I really appreciate. And one of them is, I'm going to quote you. I love the combination of fruit and cheese. Like, let's talk about this. Well, I mean, I, I don't think there's much to unpack there. I mean, fruit and cheese is delicious. <laughs> Um, I mean, in, you know, in a very obvious sense in, in England, you'd have like cheddar and apple or, you know, pecorino and pear, you know, these are, these are things that are absolutely delicious watermelon and feta. These are all like classic kind of obvious pairings of fruit and cheese. Um, and I guess I'm just taking a little, I guess you wouldn't, people don't usually eat tropical fruits with cheese. So this, this mango and cheese salad that I do with the jalapeno and the lime and sesame dressing, I absolutely love that recipe. It's so easy and it's just, it's just such a good combo. Um, but yeah, I, 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 savory and sweet, um, is just really one of my, one of my favorite combinations. Yeah. You know, I wasn't trying to create something out of nothing. And of course we've all seen cheese plates and cheesecakes and all that, but I think maybe I was honing in on the use of tropical fruits and cheese um, but I think Americans also so, many detest the idea of like a watermelon feta, just like that is really, really? but really? I push back on that. Yeah, it's <laughs> weird, right? Isn't that weird? It, it is really weird because I mean, it's just all about balancing flavors and, you know, salty goes with sweet. That's just, that's just 101. 101, but sometimes we, 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 we don't think of that way. Okay. Another combination I'm really cool. I'm really interested in is maple lime sesame oil in a salad dressing, those three ingredients, it's really cool to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love that dressing. It sounds, I mean, in my head it sounds pretty simple, but I've had so many uh, messages about that dressing because I use it twice in that mango and cheese salad and also in a kind of a, a pretty sort of simple green gem and herb salad with pickled shallots. Um, yeah. And yeah, lots of people have contacted me saying like, oh my God, this dressing is amazing. I'm like, oh, okay, great. I think what's really important with dressings in general is that you should really make them a lot more salty and a lot more acidic than you think they need to be because more often than not with a salad dressing, it's going with something that has a high percentage of water. So like whether that's a watermelon or lettuce, you know, it's mm-hmm. going to be really watery. So dressings should be like super punchy, super salty, super acidic. Um, and I think sweet, you know, a bit of sweetness is really great in there as well. So and then that sesame, that nut, nuttiness sort of just balances all that out. But it's really important with that dressing, I think, to use to use a nice toasted sesame oil. You can get some incredible ones. I don't know if you have the brand um, Kadoya in, in the US, 
that Kadoya toasted sesame oil like will change your life. You're mm-hmm. like it, it. It's just unreal. So use that yes. in that dressing, and you know it will take it to a whole new level. I've not heard that brand, but I'll check it out. And I think sesame oil. Uh, you got to be careful with it because it does spoil. And if you have had in the back of your cupboard for six months, you know, you might ruin a salad. But of course, if you live in a city that has like a large, uh, you know, Chinese, Korean, Japanese population, or you have a great market, you can find fresh cold pressed sesame oil, the best thing, right? It's so good. Yeah, it's so good. And it's also you're right, like if when you have had it sitting in the back of the cupboard, and you have maybe like a cheap brand it just kind mm-hmm. of tastes kind of really quite gross but yep. a, a good cold pressed or a good yeah a really good toasted sesame oil is unreal roasted cabbage with mango and harissa salsa is your cover star it is the recipe at least for your u.s edition how did you come to that being on the cover of your book that recipe um i think uh so there was a lot of factors obviously with the u.s edition we always go with a, a photography led food a food photograph we'll get into that we'll we'll get into that (laughs) so that's obviously one thing um i think we all felt it was important for it to be a vegetable focused dish so just to appeal to a wider audience um and then i you know i think this one is just a really beautiful vibrant uh dish it's uh it's got layering you know you've got that mango salsa on the bottom the fresh uh the roasted cabbage on top with the fresh herbs so there's lots of it's very you know colorful and eye-catching um and i think uh i think the publishers also liked that there was just like a hint of some of someone well me behind um because you know there was talk they they you know sometimes they said they want an actual person on the cover with the food which is i don't like that at all <laughs> but we um, got a hint of you we got a hint a of hint, you a cover. hint of me and also i think it was nice that the t-shirt is orange which kind of just like harks yeah. back to the to the orange cover of the uk cover so it kind of we didn't do that on purpose at all like you know we we got to the us cover once we'd done the shoot we didn't like take a photo thinking this will be the cover but it was yeah. just a few different factors that came together you know a hint of a person that orange linking it back to the uk cover a veg dish, like something vibrant. And yeah. So UK covers in for cookbooks, they often or sometimes do not have food on the cover. They're illustrated and they're fucking amazing. What is up with us as US publishers? Why do we have to put food on our covers? It is such an interesting one. I feel like, well, I've had this, we've had this debate uh, twice now because, you know, we did the same thing with flavor and I feel it, it is such an interesting one because uh, the publishers do do their market research for this. They, you know, they they send out surveys to a, a good a broad spectrum of people um, with examples of design led covers and food food photography led covers, and the results they get is that people are more likely to pick up a, go- a book with a food photograph on the cover which is interesting because i don't know who they're talking to because Eh, i'm like like eh, i don't get that yeah exactly because (laughs) all i get from my u.s readers is oh is there any way that i can get the u.s book but with the uk cover or like why don't we like that's the i i hardly ever get in fact i'm gonna yeah i don't really ever get good feedback on the cover it's never like oh beautiful cover it's it's always like oh why can't we have the uk cover so I'm not sure who that I know they do their market research because they send it they send it to us but I just you know I don't know who they're contacting and who's you know feeding back to me 
it, there seems to be some sort of disconnect. Um, yeah. I'm only teasing too. I, I actually do believe that there is real market research and, and they obviously want to sell cookbooks. You know, that's the whole point. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it is a really interesting one though. There's so many articles that, uh, are up there about it. But, um, yeah. Well, my book food IQ I did with Harper Collins, I was able to convince them to do a, an illustrated cover and I will always in the U S so I'll always thank them for that option. <laughs> but Okay, I have another food, another dish that I want to talk to you about, um, and it's really cool. It's it's you do a pappardelle with with chipotle pancetta. Um, there's some chipotle flakes, cumin. I feel is this Italian? Am I missing the region, or is this truly the land of Ista? Um, I mean, it's it, it yeah, it's definitely Italian. It's kind of like a amatriciana with the uh, with 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 cumin and chipotle that's pretty much it um so it really it, it's a you know it's a italian mexican mezcla kind of thing um i mean obviously there you know you do use cumin in italian cooking but not so much and not really in pasta dishes so that's definitely more of like a mexican spice and the chipotle of course is is a mexican spice and it really works it, it's delicious and it's super easy that uh, that recipe um I mean, unlike an amatriciana where you would have like crispy pancetta, this, you kind of want to just blitz everything together in this sauce. So it's kind of like just a really silky sauce. The essence coats. of pancetta exactly. runs throughout the sauce. I exactly. love that. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a really good one. Okay. So cannelloni enchiladas growing up in West Michigan, two of my favorite foods, like independently big semicolon there, cannelloni enchiladas. You, my friend have put them together. So thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I love that. I love that recipe. Uh, and that recipe is actually the, the, the last living proof that there was actually another section to this book. So in my original proposal for this book, uh, there was going to be another chapter. So it's going to be every day, 11 ways entertaining in the end. So four E's, I don't know where I, what I, why I wanted to do that, but 11 ways was going to be a chapter with 11 different ways to use up a roast chicken. And then and then I just like halfway through writing the book, I was like, this is so random. Why am I doing this? Um, and yeah, it just felt wrong. But that uh, leftover roast chicken, cannelloni enchilada, that one stuck because it was just such a great one. And obviously you don't always have, you know, if you make a roast chicken, you don't always have leftovers. So you can, you know, start with a rotisserie chicken from the supermarket or just like cook up some chicken thighs or cook up a, or just cook the roast chicken for it. But yeah, it's, I love that recipe and it it just works so well. Like, you know, maybe you wouldn't think that pasta would go with like a salsa fresca kind of pico de gallo kind of thing on top with coriander and lime and and an onion, but it really does. It goes really well together. So if anyone hasn't tried that one, definitely. Definitely pick it up. It's a cool recipe. Um, so let's talk about London because, you know, you're in the city, you're living there. What's happening these days? Like we're post-pandemic. It seems like London um, is embracing this post-pandemic life. But what's it like? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, it feels like it's kind of like what pandemic here? Um, I, I, I think I think you guys are still are you guys, you guys still sort of being safe, keeping wearing masks and stuff somewhat. Not, yeah, I think it's it's as if it's kind of as if it didn't happen here. Everything's gone back to normal. I think everyone's trying to like forget that it ever happened. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so, yeah, things are things are yeah, actually, I mean, it is a weird time because things are, have gone back to normal and things are very exciting. But at the same time, we've got a huge uh, cost of living crisis going on at the moment. 
and the aftermath of uh, Brexit that obviously went horrifically bad. We lost, you know, so many people, so many people in this in the food industry uh, have, you know, have gone because we're not welcoming people from, you know, we're, we're not welcoming people from Europe anymore. Um, it's a hostile place to live. There's a huge staffing crisis here. So pretty much every res- restaurant is running on very like short sort of staff, like skeleton staff. Uh, it's actually kind of, it's, it's really depressing. Um, I know so many restaurants that have had to uh, decrease their opening hours, like, you know, they're now opening, only opening Thursday to Sunday or Wednesday to Sunday because they just don't have enough staff. And, and also, you know, prices have gone, all restaurants have put their prices up with, with reason because, because of this, you know, this fuel crisis and because of this staffing crisis and because, because, you know, food costs have gone literally like that because of Brexit. So it is, it's, it, you know, it's a really mixed bag. People are, you know, feeling very free and it's a very, you know, the weather is great, but also, you know, the weather is great because of climate change. So it's all, oh, oh my gosh, that, that little wrinkle at the end is just, oh, wow. So, yeah. Anyway, you're bringing that in. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know where I'm going with this, but, uh, things are good here in London, but also there's a lot that is not good. Yeah. <laughs> it, let me ask you when you're dining out, are you, um, experiencing like in New York, we have like these hot restaurants, it's like impossible to go to them now, which seems like it's a good thing for the restaurants to have that kind of demand, but they're at limited staff as well. And they're kind of, oh, I, thought, I, thought, I thought you meant like temperature wise, they were so hot that you couldn't go there. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's funny. Yeah. It's like 140 in the restaurant and they have to close and I was, because I, of climate change. I was about to say the other day I was in a restaurant and it, they didn't have AC and it was so hot that we were just like, Oh my gosh. It was, yeah. It was. What hot. a dystopia. You can't dine at a restaurant because the kitchen is literally too hot. No, but seriously, I was, um, you know, in the last couple of weeks we've had a, we've had a, um, a heat wave in the UK and it went up to 41 degrees, which is the hottest it's ever been in the UK ever. Um, and obviously when you're in a kitchen in front of a, in front of the stove, you add 15 degrees, well, 15 degrees Celsius. So, you know, I, I saw chefs on Instagram in London, like, you know, showing temperature gazes that were like 50, 55 degrees centigrade, which I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's fucking hot. It's uh, <laughs> anyway, no, that's 20s. not what you were saying. You were talking about hot as in popular. <laughs> yeah, popular. But are you finding popular? It's hard to book tables. Uh, yeah, for sure. But also, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely hard to book tables uh, for a lot of the good restaurants. Um, and yeah, that has a lot to do with the, also a lot to do with the fact that there are staffing shortages and um, they've like reduced their working weeks. But anyway, I feel like I'm making this all doom and gloom. <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, no. I think you're being pragmatic about it. And I asked you, do you watch the show Industry? I don't. No, I've never heard of it. Oh my gosh, it's 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 well, it's a it's a HBO show here. It's in the UK, but it's a UK production about a young staff working at and some older staff working in um, in high finance in London. But it gives you a sense of culture in that world in a very succession style. The filmmaking is succession style in some ways. I think they take, it's also very uh, Mad Men. Um, it's a kind of a combination of the two. And I think uh, it's growing an audience here and it's making a lot of Americans like, wow, UK culture, work culture is really interesting. Yeah. 
<laughs> so sorry that we don't mean I don't mean this to be a television criticism show. <laughs> no, I look forward to checking that out. Uh, you're busy. So are you traveling at all? I wanted to ask you we're summer vacation mode here. I want to know you have your eye on destinations and, and cuisine. Are there any countries you are uh, circling to go to? I yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hoping to go to the Azores in the next couple of weeks, which is uh, yeah, somewhere yeah. that just looks really incredible. People say that it's like the Hawaii of Europe, you know, and that you're never further away, never like more than 10 minutes away from like a waterfall, like a lush rain, like forest kind of thing. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I actually have no expectation about the food. I mean, it's obviously part of Portugal, so I'm sure that there is. So it'll be Portuguese leaning, um, but it's also very far away from the mainland. So uh, yeah, that's going to be really intriguing. I'm like, I'm, I'm actually sort of more excited to see what kind of produce I can get there. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm probably going there in the next few weeks. I haven't booked anything, but I'm a super last minute planner. The only way, the only way, if you're going to have like a real adventure. Yeah, it's true. Um, and apart from that, I'm, I actually don't have anything booked in. I I'm crossing my fingers. I'm sort of vaguely in talks about a job in Bali in October, November and, um, Indonesia is somewhere I've never been and a cuisine that I'm super intrigued by and, you know, incredible ingredients, uh, out there and yeah, Indonesian food. You know, I mean, that's a, such a broad term of course, but you know, I would hope to travel a, a little bit around. So that's, uh, I'm crossing my fingers that that comes through and that I can spend some time around there because it looks incredible. And yeah, like I said, I love Again, umbrella term, Indonesian food, but I know it's more specific. Big country, than that. lots of population, lots of space there, so it's hard to encapsulate. I, the Indonesia. only reason I'm I'm umbrellaing it is because my knowledge of it is is very very limited. So I, you know, I my, I need to go there to to find out more is what I'm trying to say. But I'm I'm you know I'm not naive enough to think that it's just one. So what do you, so you, the book is wrapped now? What do you how, what are you working on? Like, are you developing recipes for editorial? Are you thinking about opening a restaurant? Like, what's what's your what's your game plan? Uh, I am not one with a game plan. Like I said, I think I'm not a planner. I Cle- kind of, clears throat before the response. No, no, no. <laughs> I just I really um I really don't I don't have my ducks in a row. I don't plan. I don't have a five year plan. Right now, I am working on pop ups and things to you know make make this book do as well as it can. Uh, I do pop up quite a lot of pop ups in general, which I enjoy. I would never open a restaurant, so that's kind of uh, love that. Yeah, no, I stance. I hate the idea of I you know, having worked in restaurants. The last thing I want to do is own one, or or yeah, no, you couldn't pay me. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's no restaurants. The pull quote. But, <laughs> Lots of lots of pop-ups. I do like recipe development for various brands and uh, like recipe consultancy, you know, for different companies. Uh, what else? It's exciting. Yeah, no, yeah, it is. And, you know, every now and then I'll be doing recipes for a magazine or a newspaper or that kind of thing. So, it, you know, all of that keeps me very busy. Um, I can and imagine. I'm not really, I'm really not a plate spinner and I have no interest in sort of like any sort of domination of anything. So I'm perfectly happy to just let things come as they, and just like, you know, take, take things as they come rather than like be like within the year, I want to be on TV with five restaurants. Like that's. Thank you for being honest. Well, it's just true. I just, that's, I'm very, I'm kind of, I'm quite sort of laid back. I don't want a stressful lifestyle. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's such a great sentiment. And, and thinking about work-life balance like in real time, it's really cool to hear that. 
and you clearly have hustle. You do the rise and grind thing, but you're not like letting it dominate your life. No, definitely not. I think I'm, I'm trying to find that balance for sure. Um, I don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's worth burnout is not worth it. You know, we only have one, we only have one life. So Easter, we asked all guests in the taste podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or budget, meaning you have unlimited budget. What would that book be? Oh, wow. Really good question. Um, I would, I certainly would need a lot of time with this, uh, for this. I would probably uh, do a bit of a deep dive into Brazilian cuisine, I think. Not so much because I think, I mean, I love Brazilian cooking. A lot of Brazilian food is not, you know, you know it's not mind-blowing, but it is delicious. But it is very, very interesting. It's so varied. You know, it's such a huge country. There's the Amazon. There's, you know, rainforests. There's seas. There's inland. Um, and also there's so much history in terms of, you know, indigenous Brazilian cooking, the influence of, you know, enslaved people who came from West Africa, uh, Portuguese cooking. So there's just so much there. And I think I would need a very long time to put that book together. But I think that would be really fun. Um, Easter Belfridge, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.